Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Veterans Care Association and Timor Awakening podcast. The Timor Awakening program is an 11-day immersive, holistic and peer-to-peer veterans program based in East Timor that has a singular vision, which is to promote the health and well-being of veterans and veterans' families. Due to the current restrictions from COVID-19, we are running slightly abridged programs on the Gold Coast uh, with the same vision and same aim. We're using these opportunities to sit down with our participants one-on-one and conduct podcast interviews to capture their story and their lessons learned and things that we can all learn from uh, as we as veterans and wounded healers move through our own journey and help others do the same. We're going to be covering a whole range of topics including defence transition, mental health, relationships, veteran suicide, PTSD and post-traumatic growth. Whether you're out and about or listening to this at home or driving in your car, we do trust that you'll learn a lot by listening to our participants. Thank you and enjoy. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the next uh, VCA podcast. It's Michael Albrecht here again. Uh, I'm sitting down in Birkdale on the uh, south side of Brisbane with uh, Nikki Jamison, who I'll uh, introduce in a moment. And we're just uh, taking the opportunity to interview some of the guests we've had uh, who have come and spoken at the Timor Awakening uh, events on the Gold Coast. And because uh, some of the presentations have been very intriguing, we want to get some, some follow-up and uh, create some podcasts for you guys to uh, really connect with the work that's being done. So, uh, Nikki, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Most welcome. And uh, look, I, I didn't actually, uh, I wasn't present when you gave the presentation at Timor Awakening on the Gold Coast recently, but that's how uh, Gary and Michael Stone sort of first mm. followed your work and, and so forth. And I've seen some uh, videos online and you were really delving into the, the, the moral injury piece of the veteran yeah, puzzle. Absolutely. So yeah. moral injury is a very new concept in Australia. Often what we look at and how we diagnose military trauma and those traumatic experiences is through diagnosis such as PTSD. Um, But given nearly 50% of people who are diagnosed with PTSD and go through a rigorous training, uh, a rigorous treatment approach to PTSD, don't often make a recovery. So my work in the moral injury space was questioning, well, is it really PTSD? Um, And I was having a look in the American literature and some of the Canadian literature and they were having the same issues with their veterans and um, moral injury sprang up and it just fit. Everything just fell into place for me and it fit. Um, So then I decided to have a look at it in more detail um, and ended up doing a PhD in it. And here we are. That's incredible. That's uh it's a, some serious commitment. I know that um, from what we've spoken about already, it, it seems like it is very early stages. If from most, um, you know, veterans communities that are looking at this, it's been on people's radar for a little while, but perhaps nowhere near the attention that PTSD uh, has received. So, look, I just really want to, you know, honour your commitment to what you've done because I know it's uh, it's going to reach a lot of people who really need it. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, do you want to maybe just explain a little bit more about what the academic journey has entailed? Yeah, so basically my, I guess, interest stemmed from, you know, the death of my son while he was still serving. Um, We lost him to suicide in 2014. So since he died, um, I really wanted to delve into what suicide was, as strange as that sounds. But I wanted to know the ins and outs, everything there was to know. I didn't want to leave any stone unturned. Um, So I actually did a master's in suicidology, which makes me a suicidologist now. Um, But even that wasn't enough. I still wanted to know more and what some of those contributing factors, particularly in the veteran space. And that's kind of how I almost stumbled across moral injury when I was looking at the veteran suicide statistics in the US and, you know, the PTSD and the links and all the rest of it um, and how veterans are just not recovering. Um, So I ended up finding moral injury and having a look at the links between moral injury and suicide, particularly in a veteran um, population. 
However, now with COVID, we're seeing much more research in the moral injury space across the healthcare arena, particularly internationally, when things like, um, you know, PPEs are not being given out because it's not enough. And nurses and doctors are going home infected with COVID and infecting their families. So their family members may be dying, which is a huge moral burden for yes. somebody to bear. Um, so that's kind of how I came across moral injury. And from there, um, I did my PhD and that was wholly and solely focused on moral injury with Australian veterans. That's a, that's an incredible story. And I just really want to you know honour what, you, what you've done there. You've got an incredible purpose and an incredible why. And it's come from obviously tremendous sadness and tremendous tragedy. Um, and you've turned that around in some ways and uh, decided to turn that into work that benefits others. And that's a, that's a really honourable journey. Thank you. I, I can uh, I think I speak for everyone when I say that. So, um, you know, let's just maybe unpack a little bit more what moral injury actually is. It's a, it's a phrase that a few of us have heard. We might have filled out a questionnaire here and there. Maybe it's starting to uh, come into some of the doctrine that uh, is um, delved into by veterans upon transition or upon return to operations, or maybe it has for a little while. But most people probably don't really know the ins and outs of what moral injury actually is. So moral injury in its basic form is a violation against what we believe is right and what we believe is good. You know, when we grow up, we're, you know, given an education, we live in a culture, we live with our families, and over time, our moral framework is built up through all these experiences and exposures, um, you know, to what we have going on for us as children um, into our adulthood. So that moral framework is very, very strong, you know, it can consist of things like loyalty, um, honour, commitment, you know, not being unfaithful and, you know, those sorts of things. Um, when those are violated, so when we truly believe that somebody has violated what we believe to be right, that can have significant issues on our mental health. Um, that can create significant feelings of shame. It can create, you know, tremendous feelings of guilt and they can go on and lead to what we call self-condemning behaviours, which is things like self-harm, um, and that can lead to suicide, um, unfortunately. And moral injury, we can also morally injure ourselves. You know, in a veteran space, for instance, if we are continually being exposed to people being bullied, for instance, and we know that's wrong, and we're stood back and watched, and we're not doing any actions for whatever reason, and there are a variety of reasons why people don't say anything but then after the event and we've seen that person be harmed we may go home and think that was wrong and it just it doesn't sit right it doesn't feel right for us and those feelings fester and they manifest over years and years and years into what we now call moral injury and that can be devastating yeah absolutely it makes a lot of sense and and what would be uh, some of the examples you've given some there already, like bullying, watching, watch, you know, standing by and watching that happen without intervening potentially. Uh, what are some other typical examples that you've come across in, during your research uh, that involves veterans uh, that can lead to moral injury? So it varies a little bit across the genders as well. So if we look at um, in combat, for instance, um, and people who have been exposed to situations where they have been forced to kill a child, for instance, um, which can happen, particularly in the theatre of war. Um, yes, it's part of your role and it's part of your job and you accept that at that time. But when you come back to civilian life and your civilian moral values start to creep in again, that's when moral injury will start to manifest. 
Um, Because moral injury doesn't happen straight away, it happens over a period of time. For females, what my research found is the moral injury was happening more in service, particularly when acts of bullying and military sexual trauma um, by leaders, for instance, was happening. That is a huge betrayal against the body and the mind and the soul because we trust our leaders Mm. in the veteran space. We trust them to look after us. We trust them to take care of our lives. You know, that's the whole platform of the military training you look after your brothers and your sisters it's the team ethos and you have each other's back so when that doesn't happen there's a huge moral fragmentation and a huge fracturing of those relationships both with oneself and others and from what i've you know seen from some of your other um, publications and videos that's actually quite common Mm, absolutely it's a lot more common than what we think it's just that we don't have that term and we've not had that term for it but now we do it's moral injury. I also re-termed it as moral trauma, moving a little bit out of the injury space into trauma because I believe it's not something that can ever be fully healed. Yep. It's just that we learn to live in that new normal and that can definitely be done. And as you said, when you come back to normal life, you start to see yeah. the differences between that life and, and the outside world become yeah. more apparent. Yeah, because when, I mean, as you would know, when you enter the military environment, your civilian moral framework is stripped from you and re-embedded and re-imaged with a military moral framework and a military moral value system. So whilst you're in the military, you see and hear things and, you know, experience things that you might think, oh, yeah, I don't think that's right. That's not, you know, appropriate. It's not good. But it's not really until you come out of that environment and your civilian, your core moral foundation starts coming back to the fore and their conflict. So one of my, I guess, themes that I was talking about in my studies, the war of the worlds, it's the war between the civilian world and the military world in a moral framework sense. And we, because we become kind of married to those beliefs when we're in the military, but and I'm, you know, I, most people listening to this know a bit about me. I did 11 years in the army and got out almost six years ago and I still feel like I'm transitioning. Mm. And I speak to people from like the Vietnam era mm. who've been out for decades. They still feel like they're transitioning. So it's like this, it takes a long time. Like I, I think we have trouble letting go of those old ways of being when they don't really serve us anymore because we're not in service. <laughs> and that can be a moral injury in itself right. or okay. a moral stressor. Um, you know, we are exposed to moral decisions every single day you know do we when we're walking past the street we may have a dollar in our hand and see somebody who's homeless do we give them that dollar or do we go into the Seven Eleven and get the one dollar coffee deal some people it probably isn't really that much of a decision for others that can be quite devastating oh my goodness I've just spent this dollar when I could have given it to somebody who really needs it you know um, there are all sorts of little decisions that we have to make every day that we might think oh did I actually do the right thing then? Mm. And that's what I generally term moral bruises. It's just those little things that we, t- yeah. we can shrug off. The more serious ones are the ones that stick with us. Yep. And we just can't seem to reconcile them within ourselves. Mm. And that's when we start to believe we're not a good person anymore. We're bad. You know, potentially we might be evil. We're not deserving of love and respect anymore. And that's when we see those deep feelings of shame and guilt and those self-condemning behaviours mm. coming in, and that's when we start hitting those danger points. Absolutely, and uh, it's kind of circling back to the, the examples you just gave about um, the, the sexual assault, which is very common for mm. women in defence. Is that um, when you say leadership? Is that um, does that stem from the leadership um, positions be, being personally responsible for doing that, or is it more that they stood by 
and let it happen? Or is it both? Um, in my study, it was more about those senior positions mm. um, and people taking advantage of the power that those positions have. So it was them doing it personally. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, but the other flip side of that is if somebody's standing back and watching that happening, mm. that person can experience a moral injury because they know that's not right. They know yep. that shouldn't be happening. Right. Um, but again, that might not manifest until they come out of service. Gotcha. Okay. So, so these things can be brewing for quite some time. Yeah. Yeah, yep. absolutely. Okay. Gotcha. And um, one thing that I found quite staggering and some people would have seen bits and pieces of these sort of stats is that, just how high the numbers of suicide in defence, especially in you know, just taking the last 20 years as an example, is compared to the amount of people we actually lost in combat. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so there are varying different data sets around. So we have to be very careful sure. when we're looking at suicide data because mm. um, there's all sorts of different variables. So basically in a very general sense, um, those people who died in combat Um, suicide is often around 10 times higher than that. So, for instance, these figures, you know, 41 members died in combat, but over 500 died by suicide um, from between 2001 to about 2018. But other data sets would say it was 56 in combat and 465 in suicide. So we have to be careful, but still, Still it's around 10 uh, 10 times higher. And that's just in Australia? Yeah, just in Australia. Um, US figures, I suspect, are much, much higher. higher. Yeah, yeah. Um, but suicide in Australia, you know, we've only really started to capture veteran suicide quite recently, yes. um, as in, you know, the last couple of decades, because often the data sets just don't talk to each other. So the way we collect suicide in Australia is very fragmented, yep. and then it's fragmented even more across the states. Mm-hmm. Some states have registers, other states don't. So it's very, very tricky. Mm-hmm. It's good that we're seeing um, veteran data collected in the census this year. So when you get your census to fill in this year, there'll be a little box that identifies whether you're a veteran or not. Okay. And that will help us actually to identify how many veterans we have in Australia because at the moment we don't even know that basic data. Right. Okay. Um, and suicide is incredibly complex to make a definitive decision um, with the coronial processes as well. So there's yep. many, many deaths out there who may have been a single vehicle accident, for instance, that may have been suicide, but because we don't know. there wasn't a note or whatever, yep. we just don't know. Um, statistically, we tend to calculate suicide um, as per 100,000. Mm-hmm. So for veterans, those who have left service, um, we calculate it's around 28 per 100,000. So 28 suicide deaths per 100,000 people in the population. Yep. For females, it's 16 per 100,000 ex-serving females. The Australian national standard baseline at the moment is around 12 per 100,000. So for ex-serving males, it's you know at least double. It's about 2.2%, 2.2 times higher. Right. For women, it's 127% higher than the female population, the standard female population in Australia. But there's a lot of factors in that because mm. female often will self-harm more as opposed to, you know, lethally um, okay. end their lives. Mm-hmm. Um, and women in military are much less. It's only about 17% of the population of the military in Australia that are females as well. So that's what I mean about we have to be very careful yeah. with yep. the data. Yep. Um, but what we are saying is it's much, much higher for yes. ex-serving males. And particularly those that are age under 30 and have transitioned out within a year, then it shoots up to about 33 per 100 thousand people really so, so that yeah, first year yeah that so we have to be really careful and really supportive of those males under 30 transitioning out of service that's the that's the, the danger zone yeah yep. yeah i mean everybody Everybody's is obviously in. at risk yes um, but yeah. they're 
a bit more at risk. A bit more so. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. I mean, it, it sounds like over time that these these statistics will become you know, more clear. But yeah. So yeah. we've obviously got the census now, yes. which is brilliant to collect that veteran data. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I believe DVA and Defence are now working together when it comes to the data sets. So Defence yeah. used to collect their own suicide data, as did DVA, mm-hmm. um, and those people who were not um, recognised in the DVA system, but were in defence, would not be captured by that system. So there was a massive gap between the suicide data. Um, So that's starting to um, be a bit more cohesive now, which is great. Um, We've got the census data and also more and more states are coming on board with having a national suicide data set. So we have the national coronial um, information system at the moment, but again, not all suicides are reported equally um so nationally in the suicide space we're trying to work more cohesively and a bit more standardized as well so hopefully we'll see some improvements but these things don't happen quickly gotcha understood and uh, you've spoken recently at a suicide veteran suicide symposium tell us a little about your involvement in, in in that and what sort of things you're working on? Yeah, so that was um, the National Symposium into Defence and Veterans Suicide. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was run by the Interim National Commissioner at the time yep. who wanted to bring um, key academics and researchers together to discuss, you know, what was happening in the, in the veteran suicide space and some potential, you know, movements moving forward. So I delivered my presentation on moral injury. Yep, which um, you can find on YouTube, by the way, if you just Google Nikki Jamison. At the, yep, yep, absolutely. You'll, you'll find it there. Um, and that went down incredibly well. Bernadette Boss um, actually, you know, said that it was amazing and really, you know, highlighted some of the things that she'd been struggling with herself, which is publicly talked about. Right. Um, and that was just lovely. And I love hearing those, you know, penny-dropping moments that, wow, this actually isn't PTSD, this is something else, and now I can actually call it something. That's a really important point. That's something I wanted to touch on today uh, with our chat is just, and you, you touched on it earlier, but essentially what the difference between uh, moral injury injury and PTSD is and how do we know the difference between the two? Unfortunately, we don't really know the difference in Australia because there's not too much in okay. the space of measurement and assessment. Yep. Because it's very, very new here and it's growing in the US as well. So there are a few tools in the US, but they haven't made it here as yet. Um, So the difference is is the areas of the brain that it impacts, for one. Uh, So there's a lot of research in there, in the impacts on the frontal um, cortex. Now, I'm not a psychologist or, you know, a brain surgeon, so, (laughs) you know, I'll be winging this a little bit. So the frontal cortex, which is where all your emotions and everything um, tend to develop, moral injury tends to impact much more deeply there. Whereas the, is it the hypothalamus, 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 could be that could be. in the back end of the brain. As I said, I'm not a brain expert here. I hope none of the listeners are <laughs> scrutinising us too much on this. <laughs> That's where your PTSD tends to, you know, be a bit more effective. So when people have scans and MRIs and the testing for PTSD and moral injury, these are the areas of the brain that light up okay. um, and they're very different across both of them. Mm. Um, and very similar symptoms. So this is why PTSD and MI often get mixed up. Um, the difference is being is PTSD traditionally known as a fear-based response, right. whereas moral injury is more about those um, moral emotions. Um, so it's a, more of a shame-based yep. response. Um, so PTSD, you know, you might have your flashbacks, your nightmares, those really hyper-aroused yep. symptoms. Moral injury, it's much more 
withdrawn, isolated within oneself um, and those shame-based um, cognitions. Thanks for sharing that. That, that. That's really helpful. And I think it's starting to unpack what the differences might be because I'm, I'm sure that uh, anyone listening to this that might be sort of wondering where they where they sit uh, would certainly like to um, unravel this a bit more. I think uh, is is there any data or any anything that would suggest which sort of cross sections of people within defence tend to be more prone to this? For example, if you are in a leadership position and you're constantly having to make high pressure, high stress decisions, you know, uh, for a prolonged period of time, I would imagine that that places additional stress on someone potentially uh whether that affects moral injury or not i have no idea um is there any indication about you know uh higher probabilities of getting moral injury based on what your position in defense was or is that too early to say yeah too early to say but you know when you talk about people having to make those very quick Mm. rapid decisions Mm. that can be Mm life-changing they're the ones that are more susceptible to vulnerable uh, uh, to moral injury but they're the ones that are more vulnerable right. to experiencing moral injury. And is that because they have to live with the consequences of what happened? Yes, okay. absolutely. Yeah. And there, there is some emerging research into the personality traits around that. So we okay. know, um, and again, I'm not a psychologist, yep. but we know there are five big personality traits. And big we five. know yep. some of those who are much more conscientious um, may be more likely to encounter and experience moral injury as opposed to those who... Um, may not be so conscientious. Gotcha. Um, mm. um, so that the big five is like ocean, isn't it? The oceans are different. They, a lot of people in defence would have done the, that's the PF sixteen. I think mm. it is. That's the the sort of stock standard, and yeah. that, that assesses these sorts of things: extroversion yeah. versus introversion. And yeah, so they're a little indicators. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but we haven't quite managed to shape that into anything we can use as an as an assessment tool right now so at the moment we look at the moral injury exposure so the event Mm -hmm. and we measure that usually quite quantitatively Um, and then we'll look at the outcome so what that has meant for people so one of the biggest um symptoms feelings emotions and impacts from moral injury is betrayal um so people feel like they may have betrayed themselves or betrayed others Mm -hmm. and it's how they live with that and how they reconcile that um that tends to create a lot of these issues that we're seeing so that can be measured um and the exposure to the event can be measured Mm -hmm. but all those you know mini tear around the personality types and stuff is very very early days early days Mm -hmm. I just sort of thought of, thought of something then when you were explaining that. I'm sort of wondering how um, difficult it must be to measure this sort of thing because if you've got 10 people who are observing the same event, you know, you, you see about this in basic psych- psychology and different stories out there. Like those 10 people will have 10 different versions of what took place. Um, how much of this is subjective? So say, for example, you're in a platoon and you're in Afghanistan and something happens um, and a private observes something that, um, that occurs and off the back of that he or she um, has a moral injury whereas the other people involved maybe didn't or the person who was in charge is like no I didn't I don't see it that way or I made this decision for this reason and if you had have known that you would see a different side of it like how much of this is dependent on your point of view or your position within uh, you know, any One, given formation yeah. 100% dependent okay. so it's incredibly yeah. subjective which makes it doubly difficult to monitor evaluate Absolutely. and assess and subsequently treat as well yep. because it's based on based on 
who you are as a person mm. and what your moral values and your moral framework. And, you know, when I mentioned the example earlier about people walking past somebody homeless in the street, mm. some people would be, my goodness, I'm awful, I'm terrible, I should have given that person a mm. dollar. Mm. Others will be like, yeah, whatever. You, know, yeah. you deserve to be there, whatever. Yep. So it's very, very subjective on who we are as people, which is why we're kind of thinking, you know, the conscientious ones yes. would be more likely to experience something that might lead to a, a moral injury or have those feelings associated with moral injury. Mm-hmm. Narcissism is an interesting one that there's some very, very early research on at the moment. And there's a couple of schools of thoughts. Um, so narcissistic personality disorder generally is around, you know, a need for grandiosity. Yep. Um, usually it's because there's lots of, you know, deeply entrenched either trauma or self-esteem issues going yep. on. Um, so when it comes to moral injury, there are two schools of thoughts. One of them is, well, this person doesn't really have a moral framework to begin with because it's all about them. So right. they're not likely to encounter or experience a moral injury because it would always be somebody else's fault. So typically it's somebody who has NPD will be less likely to take any kind of responsibility for anything. Um, and that is very generalised. Mm. Again, I'm not a psychologist, but I have studied NPD. Yep. Um, Narcissistic and I, personality disorder. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Um, and I do have a few certificates in it. So, okay. <laughs> so I know yeah. a little bit about yeah, it, yeah, but yeah. I'm not in a psychology perspective. Certainly more than myself and probably most people <laughs> listening, so that's fine. Um, but others on the other school of thought is, well, because um, somebody with NPD is really focused on themselves, to not have things go their way morally may actually, you know, impinge on their own moral framework wherever that lives within them so again very very early there's been no you know Mm. tests this is just theory at the moment and the what ifs Mm -hmm. um much more research is needed that's very interesting Mm. that's very interesting you know i think we'll all get our own uh, opinions on that and we've all (laughs) all met uh, a whole range of people during our our time in defense and uh, that's up for the individual to to unpack but i think what you've just touched on there is really interesting because things like um, because this is much more publicised now. Things like the Brereton Report are top yeah. of mind for a lot of people. Mm. And I think when um, issues like this boil to the surface, it becomes more divisive and, and people start to – the differences in people's opinions become more apparent mm-hmm. and more vocal and more spoken about, whereas before it was probably more in the dark. Tell us a little bit about um, what the effect of um, you know deep dives into what happened in Afghanistan and what's happened in – veteran campaigns in recent times, such as the Brereton Report, have had on veteran mental health and and suicide? Well, the Brereton Report is, you know, a typical example of where moral injury lives very comfortably. Gotcha. Um, You know, people have gone into this um, piece of research, I suspect, believing that this would be confidential. And so the um, Brereton Report is... You know, it's an environment for moral injury to fester. And what I mean by that is, you know, the research itself, being a researcher, we are, you know, obligated and mandated to, you know, sign a whole heap of ethical processes. It took me nearly two years to get my piece of research ethically approved. Um, So I suspect this piece of research should have been ethically approved. Therefore, people who were involved in that piece of research were telling their stories and their experiences would have expected that to be confidential. So for them, if that wasn't the case, that could incur a moral injury because they trusted somebody to take their story and keep it confidential and then now it's out there in the public domain. For others, 
reading about what had happened can be morally injurious because, you know, they've given their life to the forces, they've given yep. their life to the service, and then to read that this happened is not in alignment with what they believe service experience should be and what they believe and what their experience was. So that may be morally injurious. So we look at moral injury with the Brereton Report on, you know, those interpersonal levels, so those relationships between people that we've heard, you know, there's been some abuses brought forward, et cetera, et cetera. The intrapersonal level, which is how we feel about ourselves and maybe our part in that story, be it being a participant or, you know, whatever the situation was for that person. But also that systems level. So, you know, what was the research position in that space? What was the organisation? What was their influence? You know, what was Defence's influence in the Brighton Report? What's the government's influence? What's the government's response? And if that is not happening in a way that a person feels should should be happening, mm. that can also create a moral injury. Um, you know, and there's been some terrible terrible you know publicity and stories that have Mm. come out for it uh, from it so you know people may be morally injured because of that as well these are things that happen Mm. in the theater of war and people are being bastardized for something um you know they've pretty much been put out to the jury before they've even you know been given a chance to discuss anything so that is going to be incredibly morally injurious um because people expect to have each other's back and it hasn't happened. And it's probably put people in a difficult situation because they're being asked to give information about what happened, mm-hmm. uh, knowing that that could result in someone being you know, burnt in, in some ways. And that might, it probably does create a lot of uh, conflict within mm-hmm. someone because they're like, oh, I don't want to be that person that rats someone out, whatever the, whatever term they want to use. But if you're in front of a judge and you're being forced to, that, that's, that's a difficult situation to be in. It's hugely morally injurious. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that person then has to leave that courtroom and process what has just happened mm, mm. and live with that decision, particularly if there's a negative outcome from that decision. Mm. They have to go away and try and process that. Yep. And that's very difficult and because there's not too much support for people who have to do that. And I suppose they can't really talk to too many people about it. No. Especially no. when it's ongoing. Yeah. Um, and, and I imagine that even for people who weren't you know, in the trenches of those situations – at the time, as it were, but just reflecting on their service, whether you were a forklift driver in Afghanistan at the time, the fact that you were there, you were in the theatre at the time, and you are providing support to people who potentially were involved with those sorts of things, even that level of separation, I imagine, probably still has a lot of people second-guessing their their reason for being there. Absolutely. And, you know, there may be, you know, memories coming back, saying, oh, maybe I should have done something more in that situation, or... Should we really have done that? Was that the right thing to do? Mm. And, you know, many of the veterans I've spoken to have actually questioned why they were there in the first place. Yep. You know, that is a moral injury. Why has our government sent all these people out there from something that shouldn't have even happened in the first place? Yep. You know, so that in itself is morally injurious. And it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a difficult situation because it's taken the gloss off a lot of people's hard work a lot of people were questioning why were they there and there's a lot of people who went there multiple rotations mm-hmm. and it's um you know the the conduct of a small amount of people is tarnishing the reputation of of, of a large amount of people mm. uh, and you know whether we should be there or not obviously no one person can i think decide that that's a that's a uh, political a big political decision and i'm open, certainly open to all sides of it but i think the to the individual which is what this is all about mm. it's a it's a big it's a big deal and when you have the Brereton Report, you know, making it very clear that those in 
leadership, chain of command, senior power, um, walk away pretty, you know, clean, nothing mm. to see here, nothing to do. That's a moral injury as well, because these are people who are supposed to have your back and, you know, take care of business and make sure everything is yep. working accordingly. And they would have been part, you know, of mm. the the order of authority at that time. And then when, you know, the proverbial S hits the fan, yep, yep. they're nowhere to be seen. The, you know, I, I went to Afghanistan twice and I, you know, I don't want to put too much of my own opinion into this, but I, I certainly saw that. You know, it was a, an environment where people were operating independently. There was, uh, in a lot of ways, minimal oversight. Um, there are people who are claiming to have not known what was going on when they absolutely would have had to have known what was going on. Um, but I think prior to, you know, the, the tree being shaken and these sorts of things falling out, it was just so easy for people to walk away from it um, because you can do that when you're in a senior position in any industry. It's not just defences, it's anywhere. But I think uh, situations like this are making um, it much, much harder for people to do that and making it more accountable. Mm, absolutely. And then these people, you know, who have tried to do the right thing, what they perceive to be the right thing their entire career, mm. and for whatever reason may leave service and need support, for instance, mm. financial, psychological or whatever. Mm. And for whatever reason, I'm sure the reasons are varied, something happens and the process is quite defective when it comes to their administrative mm. process or their transition process. That also can lead to moral injury because, again, this is a system mm. that's supposed to have my back. I've invested my life into protecting everything that we believe to be right and I expect you to do the same when I need you and they're not there. That's a that's a huge part. That's the betrayal that you've mentioned a few times, isn't mm, it? Yeah. What What do you think is? It's easy for us to you know hypothesise what the solution is, and I expect us to you know um, solve this right here and now. But there's a few things you've mentioned in in some of your uh, talks before about um, you know resilience. How, how can we be on the front foot, proactive rather than reactive, in you know. Um, making soldiers, sailors and airmen and airwomen more resilient to these things in the first place? Is that something that needs to happen from day one in training? Is it something that happens? Like, how do we uh, immunise, if you will, um, people against this risk? So what my study found is it actually goes back way before then. So this is wholly and solely about early intervention. And okay. to do that, this is actually teaching people how to communicate and how to be compassionate. Now, these are basic skills that most of us have, but there's a lot of us, and particularly those that have a lot of added responsibility, may not have time to re-engage those skills for whatever reason. But this is as basic as understanding emotional intelligence mm. and how that can impact on us but how it impacts on those that are, you know, working with us as well. Mm -hmm. Um, So heightening the, I guess, education of what emotional intelligence is, what morals are, this is not just about ethics, because I know it's part of training packages, both in service and in corporations, you go through your code of conducts and your ethics and all the rest of it. Mm -hmm. Morals are not ethics. They're two very different things. Morals is something that isn't trained. The ethics side is... So we need more education, more training on what morals actually are and how they impact and what it looks like in this space. And how, what's the, the best way to do that? Is that something that can be included as, as a through line in training from, from day one and from every day beyond that? Or is it, is it a dedicated sort of 
workshop or program, what would you suggest is the best way? I think it's all of the above and then some. This actually needs to start in recruitment. So right. this, these moral frameworks need to be embedded in the recruitment processes and psychological processes, mm. the assessment processes that happen in recruitment. So as I said, this is about early intervention. This is mm. capturing people right at that very, you know, the minute they're interested in defence. Yep. That's when the moral stuff needs to be embedded. Um, so we can understand what people's values are. If we understand what people's values are, mm-hmm. we will know what triggers them. Okay. If we know what triggers them, we can help them through that mm. should they be triggered during service. That's a really interesting point because I think um, what I think would make that even more difficult is if I, I think a lot of people join the army or the defence force um, before they really know who they are. Mm. And that, I can 100% say that that's true of me. Mm. I joined at 19. Some people joined straight out of high school. We, A lot of people join the defence force because they're running away from something, mm. often a broken home, a bad situation, living in a small town they don't want to be a part of. Um and so I'm just wondering how put together for a lot of people those moral frameworks already would be when they when they join, and and if so, how do people discover what they are? If perhaps they haven't really formed yet. Mm. I, I don't know. And which they won't. And part of my, I guess, some of the recommendations that I put forward is actually measuring it over a period of time. Right. So okay. you know, I'll take Kapuka as an example. Mm-hmm. You know, you'll go through recruitment and all the rest of it. So you'll have your assessment, which would have the moral. Um, embedding in there to start with and then you'd go through your training which would also have this is in my ideal world if i had a magic wand so the people who are delivering the training would be trained in moral injury and you know emotional intelligence embedded within that so they understood how that looked and how that worked the recruits would also be trained in what morals look like and how they impact and you know what maybe to look for and what not to look for and then after training Mm. measuring their moral framework there and then maybe a year or five years after service as well. And I know administratively that's a lot of work. Mm. And I know, you know, listeners are thinking, well, that's not possible. Yeah. Um, but this isn't a huge task. This is a few extra questions yeah. to sit down with somebody and talk about what their expectations actually are. Because what we find is if your expectations don't align with reality, that can create moral injury. So it's founded in what those expectations are that may lead to a violation of some kind or a betrayal, which when which then fractures relationships either with yourself yep. or with others. So if we understand that from the outset, right. we can you know understand what might be triggering because um, we see all the glossy brochures, we see all the glossy magazines. Yep, ADF looks fantastic, blah blah blah, and then you get in there. Mm. And it's a very different story. Yeah. <laughs> and that can be incredibly morally traumatic for some people. And there's some really outdated um, cultures within defence that are still there. You know, I uh, I joined 3RR uh, in the early 2000s. And, you know, I first joined that as a 20-year-old because uh, I was a reservist first. And I just remember going down there so nervous because there was all this stuff in the news about bastardization and things. I thought, you know, am I going to get beat up on my first day? All this <laughs> stuff as a skinny little 60 kilo kid joining the big bad three hour. Um, you know, that never happened. Fortunately, oh, you know, I was lucky. I was just a bit of a gray man. I sort of flew beneath the radar, but for some people it definitely did. Mm. And, you know, 20 years later, better part of that's still happening. You know, I'm talking to people who are in infantry units now who said that bullying still happens to this day. And I'm just thinking, you know, it's, it's really time for this stuff to get beaten out of, of defence. It's it's very um, archaic. Absolutely. There's yeah. a different way. A leader doesn't need a rod. A mm. good leader 
will do it naturally and people will follow them and they don't need to have a firm hand to do it. Mm. You know, I've met many leaders in defence and out of defence who just have that that energy and that aura. You will just follow them just because yeah. you trust them. And that's what it's about. It's about the trust. So, you know, there are these little changes that can be made. It doesn't have to be a full overturn. Um, it's just the little changes that can lead to the big changes. But I agree in that, you know, there's still a lot of culture that needs to be spotlighted and considered. And a lot of that needs to be overturned. And But I think that will start to happen over the next generation of you know defense members coming through mm. and as the people who are in there now as they're moving up through the ranks their experiences and exposures are very different to what you know the senior officers exposures were 20 30 years ago who might yeah. be still in there and our values are very different now um, we are much more open as a society when it comes to our emotions and mental health um, so i can only hope that that you know mm. trickles on through as we go through generationally. You've mentioned um, yeah, some examples of what can happen at recruitment and at Kapuka and things like that. What, what needs to happen in the leadership circles, Adver, Duntroon, people who are going to be in charge uh, of people and have oversight of these sorts of potential issues? What, what needs to happen uh, from a cultural perspective, from a, an awareness perspective, emotional intelligence perspective, uh, in leadership circles to start to get on top of this sort of thing, do you think? Again, they need much more intensive training mm. on what it actually means to lead and manage people and what that means. So in the, you know, in the leadership space um, and chain of command, they're responsible for people's you know, emotional, physical and psychological health. So they really need intensive training mm. on what that might actually mean. But they also need training on what their own values are and how they might impact um, and again, it comes down to that emotional intelligence. And that's what we seem to be lacking in a lot of the, mm. you know, not just defence, in corporations across Australia as well. Mm. It's, you know, sometimes the power, control and money tend to go to people's head and people's thoughts and feelings are disregarded. But mm. we don't live in that world anymore. You know, we're in a world where we have to consider each other's thoughts and feelings. Yeah. And there's still a lot of stigma in defence about mental health and when people are struggling. So we need to start addressing that more. And you know, I absolutely understand that we need to build a strong, capable defence force. But we're not going to do that by breaking people down mentally. Mm. And you can do that with people who are, as some might say, a bit more sensitive than others, or who, you know, may have some things that they haven't quite resolved, you know, previous traumas or mm -hmm. whatever. That doesn't disregard them from being a strong, capable defence member. Yep. You know, most people can bounce back from any experiences, providing the capabilities and resources and supports available for them and they're, you know, accepted to them. You've intuitively kind of got to uh, a topic I wanted to touch on there is like how do we manage the balance that's needed here? Because what we are fundamentally talking about here is training a warfighter. Mm. Um, so where there's maybe difference from the corporate world or, you know, other industries, other environments is that, you know, defence has got a really difficult task on its hands here because we need to prepare people to go for war, to war. Um, both be able to make critical life um, or death decisions under extreme pressure, both as the leader and the, and the person who's following those orders, um, and the, the resilience and the toughening that's required to be able to operate in those environments, but also have this humanistic side, mm. this empathy, this uh, emotional intelligence. How do we strike the right balance between those two? For me, it's the balance would be um, striked through trust 
Everything is founded in trust right. and defense. So, you know, morally, when we're talking about our emotions, we need to feel safe to be able to do that. For those people that don't feel safe, they may manifest their emotions in very unhealthy ways. So if they had somebody they could trust, their, you know, senior command, mm. whoever, um, that makes a lot of difference. Not everybody struggles with moral injury. You know, there are many people who are exposed to many morally injurious events during service, but that doesn't mean they'll have a moral injury. So what is it about those that is working? Mm. What is it about that, you know, platoon, battalion, whoever, mm. um, that has worked for that particular area? What is it about that leadership style that has worked? Mm. You know, as I said earlier, we've all met good and bad leaders and it can make a difference to your, to your work experience. Um, and it is an incredibly hard mm. balance to try and achieve. And, you know, I don't know if anybody's got that right and I don't yeah. know if anybody ever will, but it's certainly something that, you know, we can work towards as we keep moving forwards and learning more about, you know, yeah, our works. human condition. Yeah, yeah, and you've... You mentioned before that it's really about having the trainers, you know, aware of these sorts of things so they can pass it down. I think that's that's crucial because one of the, one of the things that is tricky in defence is a lot of people will say if a, if an external expert comes out, mm-hmm. a consultant, mm-hmm. psychologist, whatever, and tries to educate or tries to um, bring to someone's mind the way that something could be done better, mm-hmm. the easy default, and I see this at all levels. Um, uh, is for them to say, oh, you just don't know what it's like because you, you know, you're not trained for war. You don't know what it would be like to try and do that in a war zone. Mm. Uh, that wouldn't work there. And I think that's a bit of a, it's a bit of a throwaway line. And it's a bit of a bailout. I don't think it's, it's got some truth to it, but I think it's just an easy way of brushing off mm. what would be otherwise good advice that probably needed to be heard at the time. I'm thinking that what could be crucial is to have people within defence who are both trained as a war fighter, have been been there, done that, and I learned. Uh, trained in these skills so that someone can say actually no I've walked the road that you have walked down and are doing right now and I've got these skills I can tell you that they do work it is relevant absolutely agree 100% I mean you can't put enough value on lived experience yeah Um, so me walking into defense you know when I do become a doctor and all the rest of it saying, oh, this is what needs to happen, you know, people will just laugh at me, well, whatever, what does she know Um, well I hope not (laughs) (laughs) I hope not too but fundamentally um you know, I understand morals and moral injury, and that can apply to anybody going in and out of defence. It's part, right. you know, the human condition. Yep. Um, however, part of my, I guess, approach and you know anything that I do in that space will be underpinned by lived experience. Mm. So the training that I provide, any therapeutic approaches that I provide will all be directed and driven by lived experience. It's not just me. I bring one layer, you know, the academia, the professional knowledge, um, but the lived experience brings it to life. So the training would be developed Mm -hmm. with lived experience um, to, you know, tailor it so it does work. Absolutely, because a human being is a human being. Absolutely. It's the yeah. same uh, It's the same makeup. And you can't make everybody happy all of the time. So. <laughs> That's right. Um, we'll just to touch on, just quickly, you've mentioned a couple of things um, about some of the therapies that can work with this. So you mentioned relaxation and expressive therapies. Do you want to touch on that briefly? What does that involve? Um, so relaxation um, and things like narrative therapies are what we call alternative models. Um, so they work well in conjunction with other models. So again, because moral injury is so new, 
rigorous testing and evaluation hasn't really been done either here or in America or other countries. Um, But what we are seeing is there's been some benefits with acceptance and commitment type therapies. And also there's one called adaptive disclosure. Um, Acceptance and commitment therapy is basically helping us to morally accept what has happened. Um, And, you know, there's all sorts of ways that we do that into how we accept something and how we reconcile that and how we validate that experience and our position in that experience. Mm-hmm. Um, but then it's also about committing to actually acting on those acceptance um, theories and areas. Mm-hmm. So, you know, accepting that, yes, this has happened. These are some of the ac- actions that might help. Yep. And now we're going to commit ourselves to those actions so we can, you know, move forward. Adaptive disclosure is much more in alignment with psychological therapies. Um, it basically pulls together prolonged exposure, CBT, um, and prolonged grief, and it's in three different stages. So it looks at some of the trauma, some of the loss, and some of the moral injury. Again, neither program has been rigorously evaluated, but both are showing you know quite nice benefits at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, I'm doing some work at the moment, and it's about pulling the little bits of the program that I feel would work and then testing them again and working with the lived experience, the community and saying, right, okay, this is what I'm thinking. How do you think this would work for you? Um, Because none of these programs have really been tested with lived experience, um, which is not where I come from anyway. So Mm -hmm. um, that's what I would like to see happening. So it's a bit of a blended approach. And of course, again, it's the human condition. We're all incredibly unique. So what might work for you may not work for me. So hopefully whatever gets developed in the end can be adapted and tailored for yep. people depending on what their needs are. 100%. Okay, that's really interesting. And you mentioned things, even things like drama and, and being more yep. self-expressive. Yep. So it's, uh, what effect does that have? Um, drama and music therapy because what I found is often, particularly with veterans, we tend to wear a mask. I mean, we all wear masks. We 100%. have our professional mask, our personal mask, and all the rest of it. 100%. Veteran, particularly male veterans mm. who are, you know, often acculturated in not to talk about their feelings anyway. Yep. Um, they hide behind this mask. So what drama, music, narrative therapies does. And there's actually a mask therapy that's been tested for moral injury where people actually use masks as a, a method, um, a therapeutic approach, um, which might be interesting moving mm. forward. Mm. Um, but what that does is it, it helps just to remove the mask just a little bit, just as comfortable as what that person is in, you know, dropping the mask a little bit and becoming vulnerable. And vulnerability is a strength and it's something we have to learn. It's also a skill. So these therapies actually help to encourage and enhance that. Um, and again, acceptance and commitment really lends itself nicely to that as well, accepting what has happened um, and committing ourselves to action. I think you're right on the money. I think our careers in defence are just a series of layers of masks mm. at the end of the day, and some <laughs> of them are necessary because, again, it's the warfighter job. You've got to do a certain task, but um, often when you get out, a lot of that doesn't serve you no. in any way, shape, or form, in, in most areas, areas of your life. Um, so that's really interesting. Mm. And the transition doesn't help with that. Because, you know, often you might get a one day or two day PowerPoint presentation telling Mm. you how to transition out, which doesn't really serve anybody's purpose. Mm. For me, a transition needs to be an absolute minimum six to 12 months. And ideally, a nice paid transition period would be lovely for people to move into a different workforce, etc, etc. Even just the basic things, you know, like how to, you know, get 
tax started or mm. you know housing centrelink if they need whatever yep. whatever they, yep. they need um and then transitioning out from there but then we need to look at the moral transitions at the same time because that can be you know much much longer as yep. we know um, particularly when those moral frameworks start kicking back in and we start questioning some of those actions that we did years ago years ago Talk to, talk to us a little bit, just briefly, about transparency and accountability. You, you've mentioned that about that's something that's really needed moving forward. What does that look like to you? So transparency and accountability, um, I guess the Breton is a classic example okay. of that one. So it's about those who are in you know, positions of power um, being much more transparent and accountable and being more responsible for what may or may not have happened. Mm. Um, but it's also about us as individuals being accountable for our own actions. Yes, things have happened, but we don't have to live in that space. There are things that can be done and we are responsible as well. So it's about being proactive, not just reactive. Mm. Um, and transparency. I think the dogs are, uh, they're warning us that it's time to wrap up. So. Yeah. And, and Trans- transparency is about people not feeling like, like things are being hidden. Mm. It's being open and honest about the process. And that is bearing warts and all. You know, part of the work that I've done in the Royal Commission you know, it's 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 not about, you know, just pinpointing blame. It's about really highlighting some of those issues. Let's bring them to the surface and let's bloody well solve them. Yep. You know, if we know they're there, if we're transparent and accountable, we can work towards solutions. Um, it's not about, oh, you know, don't say this or don't say that because so-and-so may get into trouble or, you know, it's not about playing the blame game. It's about bringing these problems to the surface and let's move forward. Let's work with them and do what we can you know, as I've said, Australia needs a strong, dependable, reliable defence force. Mm-hmm. We're not going to do that if we don't maximise um, our responsibility as well and maximise the mental health of, of veterans, both serving and ex-serving. Um, you've definitely got a very powerful personal story about why, you know, what the importance of this is. So uh, I just wanted to you know, honour you again for everything that you've Thank done you. in this space and it's... Um, you know, I'm really excited for more of well, of your research and more of your presentations and more of the information that you've been working tirelessly over the last few years to to produce and getting it out there. And I guess on that note, how can people um, follow your work? You know, get in, reach out to you if, if need be, because this is probably hit on a lot of really key points for many many people. What's the best way to uh, to do that? Yep. Yeah, well, I'm pretty public on social media, so you can find me on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Um, also academically um, research gay and academia Um, that's where I upload my papers Um, I've got two that are currently under review as well which looks at um, veterans experiences of how their moral injury developed and what the consequences of that was for veterans so they'll be really interesting once they get published Um, and my thesis is you know that will be published a bit later when it's gone through the process and comes out of embargo Um, so, yeah, so people just do a search on me and you will find me. <laughs> Amazing. And uh, just finally, what's next for you? Like you submitted your thesis, I believe you said, just a few weeks ago. So that's, uh, you know, um, under underway. What's what's next for you in the next sort of six to 12 months, if you, if you have a plan for that? Yeah. yeah, so the next big ones for me is actually turning my thesis into something that is proactive. So okay. I would really like to turn my thesis and honour the participants' stories and turn that into a book. Um, and then as part of that whole journey... 
I would like to develop, you know, some training in that area as well. So, and that will be underpinned by lived experience, as I've said, and also develop um, a treatment and support program for those that do identify as experiencing moral injury. And again, all of that will be underpinned by lived experience. Amazing. So that's my next step. Look a magic wand moment. <laughs> <laughs> Look forward to seeing all that and uh, continuing to follow your work. And you're going to, uh, hopefully, uh, if we're lucky, you come down and um, talk at the next. Uh, team or awakening gatherings, which are currently still on the Gold Coast. You know, uh, we're not too sure when we'll be able to get back to Timor, but uh, really look forward to seeing you come down and chatting then, and uh, continuing to following you online. Fabulous! Look Nikki, forward to being there. And thank, thank you. Thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Good on you. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We trust it's been valuable. If you've got any comments or questions, feel free to reach out to us at support at veteranscare.com.au. And we do encourage you to share this podcast with anyone you feel really needs to hear it. And keep a lookout for our next episode. Thank you.